The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. In this special edition of Confessing Our Hope, we'll be kicking off our fall season with a sermon from Samuel Davies entitled, The Divine Government, The Joy of Our World, on Psalm 117, verse 1. The Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. Wise and good rulers are justly accounted an extensive blessing to their subjects. In a government where wisdom sits at the helm and justice, tempered with clemency, holds the balance of retribution, liberty, and property are secured. Encroaching ambition is checked, helpless innocence is protected, and universal order is established, and consequently peace and happiness diffuse their streams through the land. In such a situation, every heart must rejoice, every countenance look cheerful, and every bosom glow with gratitude to the happy instruments of such extended beneficence. But, on the other hand, woe to thee, O land, when to thy king is a child. Ecclesiastes 10:16. Weak, injudicious, humorsome, and peevish. This is the denunciation of Solomon, a sage philosopher and an opulent king, whose station, capacity, and inclination conspired to give him the deepest skill in politics. And this denunciation has been accomplished in every age. Empires have fallen, liberty has been fettered, property has been invaded, the lives of men have been arbitrarily taken away, and misery and desolation have broken in like a flood when the government has been entrusted in the hands of tyranny, of luxury or rashness. And the advantages of climate and soil and all others which nature could bestow have not been able to make the subjects happy under the baleful influence of such an administration." It has frequently been the unhappy fate of nations to be enslaved to such rulers, but such is the unavoidable imperfection of all human governments, that when, like our own, they are managed by the best hands, they are attended with many calamities and cannot answer several valuable ends. And from both these considerations we may infer the necessity of a divine government over the whole universe, and particularly over the earth, in which we are more especially concerned." Without this supreme universal monarch, the affairs of this world would fall into confusion, and the concerns of the next could not be managed at all. The capacities of the wisest of men are scanty and not equal to all the purposes of government, and hence many affairs of importance will be unavoidably misconducted, and dangerous plots and aggravated crimes may be undiscovered for want of knowledge or pass unpunished for want of power. A wise and good ruler may be diffusing among his subjects all that happiness which can result from the imperfect administration of mortals, but he may be tumbled from his throne, and his government thrown into the greatest disorder by a more powerful invader, so that the best ruler could not make his subjects lastingly happy unless he were universal monarch of the globe, a province too great for any mortal, and above the reach of the ambitious power of others." Further, human dominion cannot extend to the souls and consciences of men. Civil rulers can neither know nor govern them, and yet these must be governed and brought into subjection to the eternal laws of reason. Otherwise, tranquility cannot subsist on earth. And especially the great purposes of religion which regard a future state cannot be answered. Men are placed here to be formed by a proper education for another world, for another class, and other employments. But civil rulers cannot form them for these important ends. 
and therefore they must be under the government of one who has access to their spirits and can manage them as he pleases. Deeply impressed with these and other considerations which shall be presently mentioned, the psalmist is transported into this reflection. The Lord reigneth. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitudes of isles be glad thereof. The psalmist seems to have the mediatorial empire of grace erected by Emmanuel more immediately in view, and this indeed deserves our special notice. But no doubt he included the divine government in general, which is a just ground of universal joy. And in this latitude, I shall consider the text. Persons in a transport are apt to speak abruptly and omit the particles of connection and inference usual in calm reasoning. Thus the psalmist cries out, The Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. But if we reduce a passage into an argumentative form, it will stand thus, The Lord reigneth, therefore let the earth rejoice, and let the multitude of isles be glad upon this account. The earth may here signify by unusual metonymy the rational inhabitants of the earth, who are especially concerned in the divine government. Or, by a beautiful poetical prosopopoeia, it may signify the inanimate globe of the earth, and then it intimates that the divine government is so important a blessing that even the inanimate and senseless creation would rejoice in it were it capable of such passions. The isles may likewise be taken figuratively for their inhabitants, particularly the Gentiles who resided in them, or literally for tracts of land surrounded with water. My present design is to illustrate this glorious truth, that Jehovah's supreme government is a just cause of universal joy. For that end, I shall consider the divine government in various views as legislative, providential, mediatorial, and judicial, and show that in each of these views, the divine government is matter of universal joy. First, the Lord reigneth upon a throne of legislation, let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. He is the one supreme lawgiver, James 4.12, and is perfectly qualified for that important trust. Nothing tends more to the advantage of civil society than to have good laws established according to which mankind are to conduct themselves and according to which their rulers will deal with them. Now the supreme and universal king has enacted and published the best laws for the government of the moral world and of the human race in particular. Let the earth then rejoice that God has clearly revealed his will to us and not left us in inextricable perplexities about our duty to him and mankind. Human reason, or the light of nature, gives us some intimations of the duties of morality, even in our degenerate state. And for this information, we should bless God. But alas, these discoveries are very imperfect, and we need supernatural revelation to make known to us the way of life. Accordingly, the Lord has favored us with the sacred oracles as a supplement to the feeble light of nature, and in them we are fully taught what is good and what the law requireth of us, and what cause of joy is this? How painful are the anxieties that attend uncertainty about matters of duty! How distressing a doubtful, fluctuating mind in an affair of such tremendous importance! This, no doubt, some of you that are conscientious have had the experience of, in particular cases, when you were at a loss to apply to them the general directions in sacred scripture. Again, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad, that these laws are suitably enforced with proper sanctions. The sanctions are such as become a God of infinite wisdom, almighty power, inexorable justice, untainted holiness, 
and unbounded goodness and grace, and such as are agreeable to the nature of reasonable creatures formed for an immortal duration. The rewards of obedience in the divine legislation are not such toys as posts of honor and profit, crowns and empires, which are the highest rewards that civil rulers can promise or bestow, but rational peace and serenity of mind, undaunted bravery under the frowns of adversity, a cheerful confidence in the divine guardianship under all the calamities of life, and in the future world, an entire exemption from all sorrow and from sin, the fruitful source of all our afflictions. The possession of every good, the enjoyment of the divine presence, of the society of angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. In short, the fruition of a happiness above our present wishes and equal to our then mature faculties, and all this forever. These are the rewards of evangelical obedience, not indeed for its own sake, but upon account of the righteousness of the blessed Jesus. And if these fail to allure men to obedience, what can prevail? And how happy is it to live under a government where virtue and religion, which in their own nature tend to our happiness, are enforced with such resistless arguments? On the other hand, the penalty annexed by the divine lawgiver to disobedience is proportionably dreadful. To pine and languish under the secret curse of angry heaven, which, like a contagious poison, diffuses itself through all the enjoyments of the wicked. Malachi 2.2 To sweat under the agonies of a guilty conscience in this world and in the future world to be banished from the beatific presence of God and all the joys of heaven, to feel the anguish and remorse of guilty reflections, to burn in unquenchable fire, to consume a miserable eternity in the horrid society of malignant ghosts, and all this without the least rational expectation, nay, without so much as a deluded hope of deliverance or the mitigation of torture, through the revolutions of endless ages, all this is a faint representation of the penalty annexed to disobedience. And it is a penalty worthy a God to inflict, and equal to the infinite malignity of sin. And let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad, on account not only of the promissory sanction of the law, but also of this tremendous penalty. For it flows not only from justice, but from goodness as well as its promise. The penalty is not annexed to the law, nor will it be executed from a malignant pleasure in the misery of the creature, but it is annexed from a regard to the happiness of mankind and will be executed upon individuals for the extensive good of the whole as well as for the honorable display of the divine purity and justice. A penalty is primarily intended to deter men from disobedience. Now, disobedience tends in its own nature to make us miserable. It renders it impossible in the nature of things that we should be happy in the enjoyment of God and the employments of heaven, which are eternally and immutably contrary to sinful dispositions. And it fills us with those malignant and unruly passions which cannot but make us uneasy. Hence it follows that, since the penalty tends to deter us from sin, and since sin naturally tends to make us miserable, therefore the penalty is a kind of gracious enclosure round the pit of misery, 
to keep us from falling into it. It is a friendly admonition not to drink poison. It is, in a word, a kind restraint upon us in our career to ruin. And indeed, it is a blessing we could not spare. For we find that, notwithstanding the terror of the threatening, men will run on in sin. And with how much more horrid alacrity and infernal zeal would they continue their course if there were no divine threatening to check and withhold them? The earth may also rejoice for the execution of the penalty of the divine law against sin, for the conspicuous punishment of the disobedient may serve as a loud warning to all rational beings that now exist or that may hereafter be created not to offend against God. And thus it may be the means of preserving them in obedience, and so promote the general good. And it may be that the number of those that shall be punished of the human and angelic natures, when compared to the number of reasonable beings that shall be confirmed in holiness and happiness by observing their doom, may bear no more proportion than the number of criminals executed in a government as public example does to all the subjects of it. And consequently, such punishment may be vindicated on the same principles." Farther, justice is an amiable attribute in itself, and it appears so to all rational beings but criminals, whose interest it is that it should not be displayed. And therefore, the infliction of just punishment should be matter of general joy, since it is amiable in itself. So it is in human governments. While we are innocent, we approve of the conduct of our magistrates in afflicting capital punishment upon notorious malefactors, though the malefactors themselves view it with horror. But to proceed... Let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad, that the divine laws reach the inner man and have power upon the hearts and consciences of men. Human laws can only smooth our external conduct at best, but the heart in the meantime may be disloyal and wicked. Now this defect is supplied by the laws of the king of heaven, which are spiritual. They require a complete uniformity and self-consistency in us that heart and life may agree. And therefore, they are wisely framed to make us entirely good. They have also an inimitable power upon the consciences of men. Should all the world acquit us, yet we cannot acquit ourselves when we violate them. The consciousness of a crime has made many a hardy offender sweat and agonize with remorse, though no human eye could witness to his offense. Now what cause of joy is it that these laws are quick and powerful, and that they are attended with almighty energy, which in some measure intimidates and restrains the most audacious, and inspires the conscientious with a pious fear of offending? Second, the Lord reigneth by his providence. Let the earth therefore rejoice, and the multitude of isles be glad thereof. The providence of God is well described in our shorter catechism. It is his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. To particularize, all the instances of providential government, which may be matter of joy to the earth, would be endless. Therefore, I shall only mention the following. Let the earth rejoice, and the multitude of isles be glad, that the Lord reigneth over the kingdoms of the earth and manages all their affairs according to his sovereign and wise pleasure. We sometimes hear of wars and rumors of wars, of thrones tottering and kingdoms falling, of the nations tumultuously raging and dashing in angry conflict like the waves of the boisterous ocean. 
In such a juncture, we may say, the floods have lifted up. O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves, but the Lord reigneth. Therefore, the world shall be established that it cannot be moved. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. Psalm 93. Sometimes the ambition of foreign power or the encroachments of domestic tyranny may threaten our liberties, and persecution may seem ready to discharge its artillery against the church of God, while every pious heart trembles for the ark, lest it should be carried into the land of its enemies. But the Lord reigneth. Let the earth, let the church rejoice. The eternal God is her refuge, and underneath her are the everlasting arms. Deuteronomy 33, 27. He will overrule the various revolutions of the world for her good. He will give kings for her ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for her, and the united powers of earth and hell shall not prevail against her. Though the frame of nature should be unhinged, we may find refuge in our God. Yet it must be owned that the Lord for the chastisement of his people may suffer their enemies to break in upon them and may cast them into the furnace of affliction. But let the earth rejoice. Let the church be glad that the Lord reigneth over her most powerful enemies, and that they are but executing his will even when they have no regard to it, but are gratifying their own ambition. They are but a rod in the hand of a tender father who corrects only to amend. And when he has used the rod for this gracious purpose, he will then lay it aside. In this language, the Almighty speaks of the haughty Assyrian monarch who had pushed his conquest so far and wide. Isaiah 10, 5, 6, and 7. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, etc. I will give him my commission and send him against the Jews, my favorite people, because they are degenerated into an hypocritical nation, and he shall execute my orders. Howbeit he meaneth not so. It is far from his heart to obey my will in this expedition. But his only design is to aggrandize himself and to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. And when this instrument of the divine vengeance arrogates to himself the honor of his own successes, with what just insult and disdain does the king of kings speak of him? Verses 12 to 15. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith, as if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up, etc.? The design of God in these chastisements is to purge away the iniquity of his people. And this is all the fruit of them, to take away their sin. And when this gracious design is answered, they shall be removed. The rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous. Psalm 95 verse 3. Now what cause of universal joy is this? That one infinitely wise sits at the helm and can steer the feeble vessel of his church through all the outrageous storms of this unfriendly climate and tempestuous ocean. He may seem at times to lie asleep, but in the article of extreme danger, he will awake and still the winds and the sea with his sovereign mandate, peace, be still. Men may form deep and politic schemes and purpose their accomplishment in defiance of heaven, but God disappointeth the devices of the crafty, so that their hands cannot perform their enterprise. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the forward is carried headlong. Job 5, 12, and 13. This was exemplified in the cause of Ahithophel in 2 Samuel 17, verse 14. The hearts of men, yea, of kings, are in the hands of the Lord, and he turneth them whithersoever he will. 
Proverbs 21.1. See also chapter uh, 16.1.9 and 19.21. And how joyful a thought this, that we are not at the arbitrary disposal of our fellow mortals, and that affairs are not managed according to their capricious pleasures, but that our God is in heaven and doth whatsoever he pleaseth. Psalm 115, verse 3. Again, the church may be endangered by intestine divisions and offenses. The professors of religion may stumble and fall, and so wound the hearts of the friends of Zion and give matter of triumph and insult to its enemies. Some may apostatize and return like the dog to his vomit. A general lukewarmness may diffuse itself through the church, and even those who retain their integrity in the main may feel the contagion. Divisions and animosities may be inflamed, mutual love may be extinguished, and a spirit of discord succeed in its place. A most melancholy case this, and too much like our own, and our hearts sink at times beneath the burden. But the Lord reigneth, let the earth be glad. He can reduce this confusion into order and make the wrath of man to praise him and restrain the remainder of it. Psalm 76, verse 10. It is a peculiarity of divine wisdom to adduce good out of evil and let us rejoice in it. God is supreme and therefore can control all the wicked passions of the mind. He has the residue of the spirit and can rekindle the languishing flame of devotion. And oh, let us apply to him with the most vigorous and unwearied importunity for so necessary a blessing. Again, we are exposed to numberless accidental and unforeseen dangers which we cannot prevent nor encounter. Sickness and death may proceed from a thousand unsuspected causes. Our friends, our estates, and, in short, all our earthly enjoyments may be torn from us by a variety of accidents. We walk, as it were, in the dark and may tread on remediless dangers ere we are aware. But the Lord reigneth. Let the earth be glad. Contingent events are at his disposal and necessity at his control. The smallest things are not beneath the notice of his providence, and the greatest are not above it. Diseases and misfortunes that seem to happen by chance are commissioned by the Lord of all, and they that result evidently from natural causes are sent by his almighty will. He says to one, go, and it goeth, and to another, come, and it cometh. He orders the devastations that are made by the most outrageous elements. If flames lay our houses in ashes, they are kindled by his breath. If hurricanes sweep through our land and carry desolation along with them, they perform his will and can do nothing beyond it. His hand hurls the thunder and directs it where to strike. An arrow or a bullet shot at a venture in the heat of battle is carried to its mark by divine direction. How wretched a world would this be were it not under the wise management of divine providence? If chance or blind fate were its rulers, what desolation would crowd upon us every moment? We should soon be crushed in the ruins of a fallen world. Every wind that blows might blast us with death, and fire and water would mingle in a blended chaos and bury us in their destruction." But so extensive is the care of providence that even the sparrows may find safety in it. And we cannot lose so much as a hair of our heads without its permission. Matthew 10, 29, 30, and 31. And how much more than are our persons and our affairs of importance under its guardianship and direction? 
Again, we are in perpetual danger from the malignant agency of infernal spirits who watch all opportunities to ruin the souls, bodies, and estates of men. These subtle spirits can inject ensnaring thoughts into our minds and present such images to the fancy as may allure the soul to sin. This is repeatedly asserted in Scripture and attested by the melancholy experience of multitudes in all ages. That they have power also in the material world to raise storms and tempests and to ruin men's estates and inflict diseases on their bodies is plain from the case of Job and many in our Savior's time and from Satan's being called the prince of the power of the air and his associates' spiritual wickedness in high places. And what horrid devastations would these powerful and malicious beings spread through the world if they were not under the control of divine providence? They would perpetually haunt our minds with ensnaring or terrifying images, would meet us with temptations at every turn, and lead us willing captives to hell. They would also strip us entirely of all temporal enjoyments, torture our bodies with grievous pains, or molder them into dust with consuming and loathsome diseases. But the Lord reigneth. Let the earth be glad. He keeps the infernal lions in chains and restrains their rage. He sees all their subtle plots and machinations against his feeble sheep and baffles them all. He will not suffer his people to be tempted above what they are able to bear, but with the temptation will also make a way to escape, 1 Corinthians 10.13. And when he suffers them to be buffeted, his grace shall be sufficient for them, and so on, 2 Corinthians 12.7-9. He hath also, as Satan himself confessed with regard to Job, made a hedge about us, about our houses, and about all that we have on every side, Job 1, verse 10. And hence we live and enjoy the blessings of life. What cause of grateful joy is this? Who would not rather die than live in a world ungoverned by divine providence? This earth would soon be turned into a hell if the infernal armies were let loose upon it. Thirdly, the Lord reigneth upon a throne of grace. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. It is the mediatorial government of the Messiah which the psalmist had more immediately in view. And this is the principal cause of joy to the earth and its guilty inhabitants. This is a kind of government peculiar to the human race. The upright angels do not need it, and the fallen angels are not favored with it. This is invested in the person of of Emmanuel, who is made head over all things to his church, Ephesians 1, verse 22, to whom all power in heaven and earth is given, Matthew 11, verse 27, and Matthew 28, verse 18. This is the kingdom described in such august language in Daniel 2, verses 44 and 45, and Daniel 7, verse 14, Luke 1, 32 and 33. Hence that Jesus, who was mocked with a crown of thorns and condemned as a criminal at Pilate's bar, wears on his vesture and on his thigh this majestic inscription, King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 19, verse 16. And behold, I bring you glad tidings. This kingdom of God is come unto you, and you are called to become its subjects and share in its blessings. Wherever the gospel is preached, there Jehovah sits upon a mercy seat in majesty tempered with condescending grace. From thence, he invites rebels that had rejected his government to return to their allegiance and passes an act of grace upon all that comply with the invitation. To his throne of grace, he invites all to come and offers them the richest blessings. 
From thence he publishes peace on earth and goodwill towards men. From thence he offers pardon to all that will submit to his government and renounce their sins, those weapons of rebellion. From thence he distributes the influences of his spirit to subdue obstinate hearts into cheerful submission, to support his subjects under every burden and furnish them with strength for the spiritual warfare. He subdues their rebellious corruptions, animates their languishing graces, and protects them from their spiritual enemies. He enacts laws for the regulation of his church, appoints ordinances for her edification, and qualifies ministers to dispense them. He hath ascended up on high, he hath received gifts for men, and these he hath distributed, and given some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ." Ephesians 4, verses 8, 11, and 12. And it is by virtue of authority derived from him that his ministers now officiate, and you receive his ordinances at their hands. Now, how happy are we that we live under the mediatorial administration, under the empire of grace. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad upon this account. And let us pray that all nations may become the willing subjects of our gracious sovereign. If this administration of grace had not yet been erected, in what a miserable situation should we have been, guilty, miserable, and hopeless. Let us rejoice that the King of heaven, from whom we had revolted, has not suffered us to perish without remedy in our unnatural rebellion, but holds out the scepter of his grace to us that we may touch it and live. Fourthly and lastly, the Lord will reign ere long upon a throne of universal judgment conspicuous to the assembled universe. Let the earth therefore rejoice and the multitude of isles be glad. Here I may borrow the inimitable language of the psalmist. Psalm 96 verses 10 and 13. The Lord shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful in all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. For he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. This will indeed be a day of insupportable terror to his enemies. Revelation 6, verses 15 and 16. But, on many accounts, it will prove a day of joy and triumph. This day will unfold all the mysteries of divine providence which are now unsearchable. There are many dispensations now for which we cannot account. Many blessings are bestowed, many calamities fall, and many events happen of which mortals cannot see the reason. Prosperity is the lot of some who seem the peculiar objects of divine vengeance. And many groan under afflictions who see more proper objects of providential beneficence. We are often led into ways, the end of which we cannot see, and are bewildered in various perplexities about the designs of divine providence towards us. Hence also impiety takes occasion to cavil at the ways of God as not equal, and to censure his government as weakly administered. But in that day, all his ways will appear to be judgment. The clouds and darkness that now surround them will vanish, and the beams of wisdom, goodness, and justice shall shine illustrious before the whole universe, 
and every creature shall join the plaudit. He hath done all things well. Now, we can at best but see a few links in the chain of providence, but then we shall see it all entire and complete. Then the whole system will be exposed to view at once, which will discover the strange symmetry, connections, dependencies, and references of all the parts, without which we can no more judge of the excellency of the procedure than a rustic could tell the use of the several parts of a watch if he saw them scattered in various places. Let the earth, therefore, be glad in expectation of this glorious discovery. Again, let the earth rejoice that in that day the present unequal distributions of providence will be forever adjusted and regulated according to the strictest justice. This is not the place or season for retribution, and therefore we need not be surprised that the blessings and calamities of this life are not disposed according to men's real characters. But then every man shall be dealt with according to his works. Oppressed innocence will be redressed, and insolence forever mortified. Calumny will be confuted and flattery exposed. Lazarus shall be comforted. Dives tormented. Impious kings shall be driven into the infernal pit, while pious beggars shall be advanced to the heights of happiness. In short, all matters will then be set right, and therefore let the earth rejoice. Again, let the earth rejoice, that in that day the righteous shall be completely delivered from all sin and sorrow, and advanced to the perfection of heavenly happiness. Then they shall enter upon the full fruition of that bliss which is now the object of all their anxious hopes and earnest labors. But we must change the scene into tragedy, and take a view of the trembling criminals hearing their dreadful doom and sinking to hell with horrible anguish. And must the earth rejoice in this, too? Yes, but with a solemn, tremendous joy. Even the condemnation and everlasting misery of these is right and just, is amiable and glorious, and God, angels, and saints will at the great day rejoice in it. The awful grandeur of justice will be illustrated in it, and this is a matter of joy. The punishment of irreclaimable impenitence will be an effectual warning to all reasonable beings and to all future creations, as has been observed, and by it they will be deterred from disobedience, and this is the cause of joy. These criminals will then be beyond repentance and reformation, and therefore it is impossible in the nature of things they should be happy, and why then should heaven be encumbered with them? Is it not cause of joy that they should be confined in prison who have made themselves unfit for society? In the present state, sinners are objects of our compassion and sorrow, and the whole creation mourns for them. Romans 8, verse 22. But God will then rejoice in their ruin and laugh at their calamity. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 26. And all dutiful creatures will join in his joy. Thus you see that the Lord reigneth. And who, poor feeble saints, who is this that sustains this universal government and rules the whole creation according to his pleasure? It is your Father, your Savior, your friend. It is he that entertains a tenderer regard for you than ever glowed in a human breast. And can you be so foolish as to regard the surmises of unbelief? Can you force yourselves to fear that he will ever leave or forsake you? 
Can you suspect that he will suffer you to fall a helpless prey to your enemies? No, your Lord reigneth. Therefore rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. While he keeps the throne of the universe, you shall be safe and happy. Your father is greater than all, and none can pluck you out of his hands. Remember, he sits upon a throne of grace. Therefore, come to him with boldness. You may smile at calamity and confusion and rejoice amid the ruins of the world. You may borrow the language of David in Psalm 45 or of Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Remember also that as he is a king, he demands your cheerful obedience and therefore make his service the business of your life. And... Unhappy sinners, let me ask you, who is this that reigns king of the universe? Why, it is he whom you have rejected from being king over you. It is he against whom you have rebelled, and who is therefore your just enemy. And are you able to make good your cause against him who has universal nature at his nod? How dreadful is your situation! That which may make the earth rejoice may make you fear and tremble. The Lord reigneth. Let sinners tremble. You must fall before him if you will not cheerfully submit to his government. Let me therefore renew the usual neglected declaration. He sits upon a throne of grace. Let me once more in his name proclaim reconciliation, reconciliation in your ears, and invite you to return to your allegiance. Lay down your arms, forsake your sins, hasten, hasten to him. The sword of his justice now hangs over your heads while I am managing the treaty with you, and therefore delay not. Yield, yield or die, surrender or perish. For you have no other alternative. Submit, and you may join the general joy at his government. You upon earth, and devils and damned ghosts in hell, are the only beings that are sorry for it. But upon your submission, your sorrow shall be turned into joy, and you shall exult when the Lord of all comes to judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Psalm 96, verse 13. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon from the great 18th century Presbyterian preacher Samuel Davies. His dates are 1723 to 1761. He was a Presbyterian preacher in colonial British America, and he helped to lead the southern phase of the Great Awakening. He's recognized, along with uh, Francis McKamey, as one of the founding fathers of American Presbyterianism, and so it's with great joy that I... Uh, I bring this sermon to you today. One thing I do want to mention is I was reading this out of the recently reprinted three-volume set of his sermons. This sermon comes out of volume one. It's reprinted under the Soli Deo Gloria publication's imprint of Reformation Heritage Books, and they just uh, republished this uh, this year in a three-volume hardback set with a beautiful new dust cover and everything. So I recommend that you check out the website for Reformation Heritage Books if you're interested in picking up this uh, this set of uh, this three-volume set of Davies sermons. And just to read one endorsement from our own Dr. Piper, um, I I think this will 
commend it better than anything I could say. With great pleasure, I recommend the sermons of Samuel Davies. Davies is one of the best reformed experimental preachers I have read. His sermons are warm and edifying, and all who read them will profit. One of the benefits for preachers in reading these sermons is to learn how to preach to the unconverted. Davies' sermons are a model of gospel preaching. If you want to be more effective in addressing and pleading with sinners, study the preaching of Samuel Davies. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu donate. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.